0: Last year, we published The Best Investment Writing, Volume 4. We offered authors the opportunity to record an audio version of their chapter to be released as a segment of the podcast, and listeners loved it. This year, we're once again bringing you the entire volume of The Best Investment Writing, Volume 5, in podcast format. You'll hear from some of the most respected money managers and investment researchers from all over the world. Enough from me. Let's get to our guests and let them take over this special episode.
1: I'm Amy Koh from Research Affiliates, a firm known for its work in smart beta and multi-asset investing. With a focus on research and product innovation, we at Research Affiliates partner with leading financial institutions to bring our ideas to you through mutual funds, ETFs, separately managed accounts, and other vehicles. To learn more about our research insights, interactive tools, and more, drop by at researchaffiliates.com and raffi.com. I will read a piece titled, A Quick Survey of, quote-unquote, Broken Asset Classes. Introduction. Pundits, prognosticators, and even investment boards often make misleading declarations that an asset class is broken, that its prospects for earning investors a reasonable future return are very dim. These proclamations can lead to investors abandoning these assets to chase recent winners. Advisors are uniquely positioned to educate their clients about historical asset class returns and to provide context for recent, perhaps disappointing, performance. In this way, Advisors can prepare their clients for substantial variations in an asset's returns. A prepared client is a confident one, and confidence begets the tenacity to hold assets over the long term, raising the likelihood of a successful investment experience via diversification, rebalancing, and long-term compounding. And isn't that what financial advice is all about? Warnings of the long-term impaired viability of asset classes have spooked investors through history. One of the most notorious was Business Week's cover story, The Death of Equities, published in 1979. U.S. stocks are not alone, however. Other, quote-unquote, broken asset classes abound. By the late 1990s, REITs were dismissed as losing the power to diversify a portfolio. And a 1999 article in The Economist concluded cheap oil is likely to remain so. Fast forward 20 years to the present. Headlines teem with sentiments such as, does investing in emerging markets still make sense? And is value investing dead? It might be, and here's what killed it. So history is littered with examples of reputable pundits, media outlets, and prognosticators cautioning investors about broken asset classes, typically at the heels of sagging absolute returns or poor results relative to mainstream markets. Similar warnings also occurred during investment board meetings. In his consulting days, John recalls back in February 2000, a board meeting of an 800 million pension fund. Recent market movements, namely growth stock outperformance, had pushed the fund's asset allocation out of compliance with its investment policy statement, requiring a larger balance out of growth stocks into core bonds and small cap value. The resistance to the mandated rebalance was unsurprisingly, for those who may have lived through this period, Stiff, with one board member stating that small cap value is a dead asset class. Indeed, it appeared the board preferred to eliminate small cap value rather than top it up. Fortunately, the investment policy statement compelled the rebalance to go through. And to this day, John will tell you it was one of his most rewarding experiences in investment management, given the absolute dollar value created for the fund's members as growth stocks plunged, small value stocks surged, and bonds steadily advanced during the bear market that eventually culminated in late 2002. When headlines lead to clients questioning their investment strategy We suggest advisors use comprehensive historical return ranges to most effectively gauge recent results on an absolute basis and relative to a mainstream asset such as U.S. equities, that is the S&P 500 index. We will review how seemingly impaired assets are rarely permanently defunct. In most cases, the performance of a broken asset class is well within its range of historical returns. And outperformance often follows a period of underperformance as mean reversion takes hold. Clients benefit from a greater understanding of the potential long-term upside in recently beaten down assets. The broken asset classes. Before delving into our review... Let's begin with a few caveats. First, our selection of broken asset classes is far from exhaustive. In making our selection, we relied primarily on a global roster of historical articles published in the well-established financial press, including Business Week, Barron's, The Economist, and Financial Times. If your own experience includes other asset classes that have been declared broken, please let us know. Second, the headlines or conversations that question the long-term viability of an asset class represent just one opinion or voice at that time. Alongside those who warn and question, others may have presented an opposite, more favorable view. Contrarians are often an endangered species, but rarely extinct. Given our survey's purpose is to show how broken asset classes typically mend themselves with time, our sample emphasizes the former. These are the same troubled asset classes that grab the headlines, grip the attention of investors, and lead to tough questions for advisors from their clients. And finally, we are restricted by the availability of return data. Although we use well-known proxies with an extended return history, few asset classes other than US stocks and high-yield bonds have a monthly series longer than a half century. A notable example is emerging market stocks. In our study, we use a return history for EM stocks that begins in 1985. Now a time span of just over three years is a relatively short time in the capital markets. And while results may not be statistically significant, they can be economically meaningful. Ultimately, our survey includes seven asset classes, beginning with US stocks following the infamous Death of Equities article published in August, 1979, and ending with a similar chorus of claims surrounding value investing and EM stocks 40 years later. So at this point, I'd invite you to see a table in our article, which shows the list of asset classes and other relevant information used in our sample. What constitutes broken? All seven of the broken asset classes in our survey posted poor performance over the three years prior to the warnings that they were impaired. Before we declare them broken, however, let's take a look at their performance in the context of each asset's long-term history, both in absolute terms and relative to mainstream US stocks. The warning date we use represents the month in which a published article or live conversation strongly questioned the long-term viability of the asset class. Now, three-year performance results leading up to the warning date generally hovered near the lower ranges of long-term outcomes. At the time of the August 1979 warning about U.S. stocks, their uninspired 5% annualized three-year return had slumped into the bottom quartile of returns since 1926. Approximately half of the group, commodities, high-yield bonds, and value stocks, generated negative returns that fell within the worst decile of each asset's long-term historical three-year rolling return. These are disappointing, infrequent outcomes, but they are not atypical or improbable. Broadly, performance results relative to the S&P 500 tended to be more severe than absolute outcomes suggesting that anchoring on mainstream assets is pervasive. For instance, three asset classes, REITs, small value stocks, and EM stocks, managed to deliver returns slightly above their long-term median levels in the three years preceding the declaration's warning that they were defunct. But... When viewed relative to mainstream assets, all three suffered relative shortfalls, trailing US stocks by up to 14% a year over the three-year period preceding their respective warning dates. They are not alone. Every asset class in our subset, except for one, trailed the S&P 500 in the three years leading up to the warning date. The three-year relative losses of four of the five stragglers fell into the worst quintile of all historical outcomes, with two in the bottom decile. So, despite alarming warnings of the impaired viability of asset classes, the performance of broken asset classes is not particularly exceptional, generally falling within the normal, albeit bottom, range of return outcomes. Mean Reversion and Missed Opportunities Far too many investors focus on the rearview mirror and react to fear-inducing headlines. Doing so incurs the risk that investors will miss good opportunities. Markets are supposed to pay a risk or fear premium to reward risk-bearing. Perception of risk and fear tend to go hand-in-hand. Hand. Asset classes get sold down to bargain levels because people are fearful. And as our colleague Rob Arnott regularly says, when risks and bad news are known to the market and fears prevalent, it's time to buy what's out of favor, unloved, and legitimately creating fear. Fear Fear-based anomalies persist because their genesis is in humans' primal impulses. In the five years after an asset class was declared broken, each roared back in a strong, and for many, swift, rebound. All except one snapped back within one year, generating returns that ranged from 14% for U.S. stocks to 68% for commodities. The sole dawdler, REITs, rebounded in 18 months, ultimately delivering a cumulative 86% return at the five-year mark the weakest performance of the group. We recognize the substantial survivorship bias in our survey, having personally survived most of these episodes ourselves. So to be more comprehensive, we also plot other periods when these asset classes fell within their lowest decile of historical three-year rolling absolute returns. A similar pattern unfolds a large majority or 88% of all observations deliver a positive five-year return. The average five-year cumulative return across all observations is 80% or approximately 12% a year, suggesting both the presence and strength of mean reversion. How do the asset classes perform on a relative basis? Recall that the broken asset classes in our survey had mostly fallen short of the performance of the S&P 500 in the years leading up to the proclamation, they were broken. In the subsequent three years, these asset classes surpassed the performance of US stocks on a cumulative basis by an average of 45% or 13% a year. After five years, The cumulative excess return of REITs, commodities, small-value stocks, and high-yield bonds versus the S&P 500 averaged 101%, or 15% a year. Over this five-year span, the four asset classes fared significantly better than U.S. stocks, with cumulative excess returns ranging from 10%, high-yield bonds, to 158% for commodities. The press is often quick to label asset classes broken. But rarely is this the case, although exceptions do exist. For instance, the German and Russian stock markets during World War I, Japanese and German stock markets during World War II, and the Egyptian stock market in the early 1950s all collapsed. The near obliteration of a stock market has happened but it is an extraordinary occurrence. The advisor's role. We are hardwired to pay attention to headlines with fear-provoking warnings. It's easy to fall prey to now casts and believe that what's already happened is a forecast of more of the same. While such predictions may sound cogent, they rarely offer insight. Our simple survey of broken asset classes reveals the following observations. First, warnings of the impaired viability of asset classes tends to be exaggerated. The three-year performance leading up to the time that an asset class is pronounced broken is typically within the normal, albeit wide range of historical return outcomes. And second, returns are time varying and rebounds can be strong after assets are either declared broken or declined to their lowest historical decile of three-year outcomes, the majority, or 90%, rebound within five years. The recovery also tends to be meaningful. The average cumulative five-year subsequent return across all observations is 80%, or 12% a year. Our primary point is not to conclusively say that bottom decile performance will be succeeded by brilliant subsequent returns. Our survey is simply not comprehensive. And even if it was, the future will not exactly mimic the past. Rather, our intent is to highlight how the advisor is uniquely positioned to prepare clients for the wide range of absolute and relative returns that capital markets will inevitably throw at them. In most cases, parroting Mark Twain, reports of asset class deaths are greatly exaggerated. But sadly, these misleading proclamations can lead to investors abandoning these assets to chase recent winners. These types of poor investment decisions can be prevented, however, with proper preparation, such as educating clients about historical asset class returns to provide context for recent, perhaps disappointing, performance. This is particularly important with diversifying assets as compared to the more traditional asset classes of stocks and investment-grade bonds. By definition, the role of diversifiers, such as high-yield bonds and commodities, is not to mimic mainstream markets like the S&P 500. Actor Richard Klein once said, confidence is preparation. Everything else is beyond your control. Recent spans of market tumult has certainly taught us that returns are well outside of our control. But an advisor can prepare their clients for substantial variations in an asset's returns and obtain buy-in for these wide and ultimately unknowable ranges. A prepared client is a confident one and confidence begets long-termism. And long-termism helps tune out the noise and raises the likelihood of a successful investment experience via diversification, rebalancing, and long-term compounding. And isn't that what financial advice is all about?
0: Today's podcast is sponsored by the Cambria Shareholder Yield ETF, ticker symbol SYLD. Are you a dividend investor? If you're focused on dividends alone, you may be missing an important component of returns, stock buybacks. When dividend yield is combined with buyback yield, we refer to that metric as shareholder yield, a metric we feel provides investors a more complete picture of yield. Why SYLD is focused on stocks that historically have offered high shareholder yield, it doesn't stop there. The fund targets value stocks as well. The result is a portfolio of historically high shareholder yield stocks with an emphasis on value. Visit www.cambriafunds.com forward to learn more. To determine if this fund is an appropriate investment for you, carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expense before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's full or summary prospectus, which may be obtained by calling 855 383 also ETF info, or visiting our website at www.cambriafunds.com. Read the perspective carefully before investing or sending money. The Cambria ETFs are distributed by Alps Distributors Inc., 1290 Broadway, Suite 1000, Denver, Colorado, 80203, which is not affiliated with Cambria Investment Management LP, the investment advisor for the fund. On June 1st, 2020, the Cambria Shareholder Yield ETF changed its investment objective and investment strategy fund also changed from being passively managed to actively managed on that date. There's no guarantee the fund will achieve its investment goal. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. High-yielding stocks are often speculative, high-risk investments. The underlying holdings of the fund may be leveraged, which will expose the holdings to higher volatility and may accelerate the impact of any losses. These companies can be paying out more than they can support and may reduce their dividends or stop paying dividends at any time, which could have a material adverse effect on the stock price of these companies and the fund's performance. Investments in smaller companies typically exhibit higher volatility. Narrowly focused funds typically exhibit higher volatility. The fund is managed using proprietary investment strategies and processes. There can be no guarantee these strategies and processes will produce the intended results and no guarantee that the fund will achieve its investment objective. This could result in the fund's underperformance compared to other funds with similar investment objectives. There is no guarantee dividends will be paid. Diversification may not protect against market loss. Shareholder yield refers to how much money shareholders receive from a company that is in the form of cash dividends, net stock repurchases, and debt reduction. Buybacks are also known as share repurchases when a company buys its own outstanding shares to reduce the number of shares available on the open market, thus increasing the proportion of shares owned by investors. Companies buy back shares for a number of reasons, such as increase the value of remaining shares available by reducing the supply or to prevent other shareholders from taking a controlling stake.